Good morning. Revelations is obviously a very uh, interesting book. It holds much uh, in the way of wisdom and guidance, but also much in the way of uh, things that we find often to confuse us or to, to mull over or to study at least a little more. What do you think about that passage that was just read? Uh, think about it for a second. What do you think about it? You know, there's some, there's some wonderful news in there, isn't there? Some wonderful news about uh, this new heaven, this new earth, that there'll be no sadness, no crying, no tears, that we'll be, uh, you know, immersed in this, uh, the presence of God. What else does it say? There's a warning in there too, isn't there? There's a warning in there that, that reminds us of what this life is intended to be. This life is intended for us to find peace with God through what God has given us, what God has chosen us. You know, we have an opportunity to, to stand before God in confidence because of Jesus Christ. And if we're not going to do that, if we're not going to come into a relationship with Christ through His death, His burial, His resurrection, then God will judge those just as he will judge those who are covered by Jesus' blood, but he will judge those and find them wanting. And there is a place of destruction. A place of eternal destruction. I hope we came this morning to praise the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you came this morning to worship God. I hope you came this morning to be encouraged. That it is important for us to worship God, to, to be encouraged. But I hope you came this morning to, to encourage others. That it's important for them to worship God. We have a, such a wonderful opportunity to praise His name. And the goal for us always should be to, to praise the name of Jesus, to bring glory and honor to our God in all that we do. Not just on Sunday morning, but in all that we do. In the life that we lead on all the other six days or the six and a half days or six and five eights or whatever it happens to be, if you exclude Sunday morning, that, that our opportunity is there to worship God in all of those things. To worship God in our actions, our thought processes, our words. How do we accomplish this? Are we, are we succeeding at this? How do we go about praising God in all that we do? How do we always think what is right, or, or say what is right, or act in a way that is pleasing to God? This is a, a fairly important question, isn't it? Since God has called us to, in all things, worship Him... We should at least be then thinking about it and drawing into it and, and trying to understand what it is in our lives then that brings praise and glory to God and living in that way. Instead of being drawn into the world. It's very easy to be drawn into the world and think that our lives are separate. This life we live away from the church and the life that we live in it. So then maybe the grander, the grander question is, is, do we want to? 
Do we really want to be pleasing to God in all that we do? Do we really want to be pleasing to God in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words? Do we want to be pleasing to God in our interactions with other people? Are we living a life that proves that out, that we want to be pleasing to God in all that we do? And I think our, our honest answer to that question, our, not, not, the, not the answer that we would maybe readily give if someone asked us that question, you know, that, that recited answer, the answer we know that they want to hear, but the honest answer that we would give ourselves is, is am I actually living this way? Am I actually doing what God wants? Am I actually choosing to be pleasing to God in all the situations that are presented to me? And that honest answer then will tell us a lot about what we need to grow in, what we need to change in, what we need to give up, how we need to act, how we need to speak, how we need to think in order to be pleasing to God. Do we need to grow? Have we reached a point where we can say, well, I'm fairly certain that I've Learned it all. The, the reality is, is no, right? The reality is, is no. Now, we stand in a place of confidence, right? We stand in a place of confidence because we understand that the blood of Jesus has washed us clean. But we still want to grow closer to our God, don't we? We still want to grow in our faith. We still want to grow in our acceptance of doing God's will over and over again. We want to, we want to purge ourselves of those things that, that draw us away from God. And in all things, then, have a desire to be pleasing to God. You know, you read through Romans, and Romans tells us over and over again in more than one place, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Should we have a life in sin? No, by all means, we should not. That, that is not the way to think. So then what, what, must, what must we do, then, to say, think, and do what is right? What must we do? You know, the world, in its patterns, uh, in its thinking, tells us that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what you do. How you choose to live, how you choose to think, or the actions that you do, the words that you speak. Uh, they matter very little. That line of thinking, that, that line of thinking that the world, that Satan puts forth, that those things don't matter, is a lie. Because those things matter greatly, do they not? As God has called us to be holy, as He is holy, to, to act in ways that are pleasing to Him. It, it, if God has called us to act in ways that are pleasing to Him, then how we act is important. How we speak is important. How we treat others around us is important. And so we should know better than to, to give in to the thought process of the world in any way. And it doesn't matter that once we leave here... We're still the church. How we act here cannot be some kind of disguise that we put on to hide how we act everywhere else. This is who we are and how we should be. And when we find ourselves apart from that, then we need to repent and come back to what God has said. Each and every one needs to repent and come back to what God has called us to. You know, it's not, it's not as if God has called us uh, into a place where he says, well, I, just, I really just don't want you to have any fun. 
just, I, I know, I, I'm just, I'm God, and I want you to be solemn all the time, and serious, and absolutely no fun. Once you take on the name of Christ, you can have no fun at all. Because what does the world put forth as fun? Okay, I, you go back to how we, how we advertise, because how we advertise is how we sell, right? And how we, how we draw people in to buy products. So you watch a hockey game and see how they sell products during a hockey game or during a TV show. And what are they selling in those products? Regardless of what the product is, what are they actually selling? What is actually going to be fun? How is life supposed to be lived? What's it supposed to look like in order to be having a joyous life? Well, what sells? I think I heard someone say something. Sin. So whether that is, uh, you can only have fun if you're, you're, you're drinking, okay? That's the only way you can have fun. The only way you can, you can have fun if you're selling a car is if you have a, a, a beautiful partner with you. Well, think of all the things that they use to sell products. Even the, the, the craziest products are all sold on all of these things that the world put forth as fun. And then when God says, well, you know what, you shouldn't partake in some of these things, you shouldn't, you shouldn't interact in some of these things, the world says, well, there you go, God calls you to have absolutely no fun. But that's not the truth. What, God wants to protect us from sin. He wants to keep us from evil. We can, you can have fun, you can find enjoyment and contentment and hope and love in God without turning over to sin without partaking in the evil that the world puts forth. And if we fall prey to that lie that the only fun we can have is partaking in evil, then we're directly going against what God has called us to. And there is growth needed because that leads us away from His will. So that's what we have to do over and over and over again is choose the will of God. And this is true as individuals, as we live our lives kind of, you know, separated throughout the week, as we, we live our lives either with our families, with our friends at, a, at, at work, or wherever we find ourselves for enjoyment, this is true that we have to choose God. But on top of that, we also have to understand that we are a group of believers, a body of believers, that we are a part of the church in Christ, the church of Christ. And as a body of believers, we also then have to be committed then to doing the will of God. And we have to be reminded, and we, I don't know if we should have to be reminded, but I think we have to be reminded that we are a part of that body. That how we live, how we speak, how we act, then is a part of that. So when we, we talk about coming this morning to worship God, have we, have we come to worship God as a body of believers? Have we come to be encouraged by those brothers and sisters around us? Have we come to encourage those brothers and sisters that are around us as well? Because we are a body of believers. We are dependent upon each other. Our world likes us to think that we are a single, separate entity. And yet the choices we make affect those around us, do they not? We are a body of believers. If we choose to harbor sin, it affects. If we choose not to forgive, it affects. If we choose to be arrogant and prideful, it affects. If we choose to walk in any line of sin, it affects the body of believers. 
Just as it does if we choose to be godly and holy. Just as it does if we choose to be encouraging. Just as it does if we choose to be meek and gentle and kind. It affects the body of believers. And so we must choose and desire to make good choices, godly choices, as a body of believers. And not solely think of ourselves as individuals. Even though we have a personal relationship with God, we are called into this body of believers. And the choices we make have effects on those around us. You turn into the New Testament. And much of the New Testament is written to Christians, is it not? In fact, the majority of the New Testament is written to Christians to correct uh, their thinking, to correct wrongs, to correct uh, mistakes, to give encouragement, to give instruction, to give wisdom and guidance. And we have to be able to open that and understand that this is for us as well. Written to us as the Church of Christ here in in 2017. That there are going to be things that we need to correct, there's going to be things that we need to change, things that we need to grow in, things that we're doing well, things that we need to be commended in. But we have to be willing to take those things and embrace them and work with them, but also take the things that we need to grow in and and change them. So turn to Revelations. In Revelation chapter 2, we begin uh, to see the, the seven churches that are, that are here. is Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, uh, Pergamos, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea are, are commended, they're criticized, and they're told what they need to do. And, and, and we're just going to read a little bit just to kind of give a flavor. So Revelation chapter says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's Revelations uh, 2, starting in verse 1 to 7, and that was in the NIV. So there we get an, uh, an illustration or just a taste of what was written to the churches. And they have these things that they are, uh, that they are doing wrong, right? So he writes to them and says, you're doing it wrong. There's things that you have to change. There's things that you have to to alter. Now, he praises them in some and says, but this is what you need to do differently. They need to grow. And there is an acceptance that they are doing this wrong. So as we look at some of this, one of the churches that was schooled and criticized, as we just read, for not having a fervent love. That they have forsaken the love that they had First, They are no longer loving the way that they had been instructed to. And they were instructed to go back to the way that they were. Where would the church be, where are we, without love? There's many passages you could turn to right now. Without love, you are what? A resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. There's nothing without love. Right? We have to have love. You know, the greatest commands are to love, to love our God, to love our neighbor. We as Christians cannot survive as Christians if we do not embrace love. 
So here the criticism that they have is to, to love, to come back and to love as they first did. Some of the other problems that the churches uh, faced uh, were that they tolerated. That they were tolerating evil. They were tolerating idolatry, heresies, immorality. And they had accepted them within the body of the church. And there is a fine line here, and it's maybe not so fine, but there is a fine line here that we have to be accepting of those who come and seek the truth and not at the same time be tolerant of sin within the church. Because each of us brings baggage, or do we not? Each of us brings sin. Each of us brings things that we've made mistakes in. And we need to be teaching, as we are doing ourselves, we need to be teaching that they need to repent. And repentance, as we talked about before, is not just saying, I'm sorry, and then continue doing what you want. That's not repentance. And you can't be forced into it. You can't be forced into it. I think we've used this illustration before. But have you ever told a child that he has to go say sorry to another child for something they've done? And how do they go about that when they're not actually sorry? Sorry. And they mean sorry, not sorry. Right? Sorry. There has to be an acceptance that what we've done is wrong. Repentance is accepting that we are sorry for our actions. There, there is that. But then at the same time that we make the choices to change from those actions and come back to the will of God. And we have to choose that. We have to choose to be repentant. We can, so we have to be teaching that, not only from within ourselves, our own lives doing that, but teaching those who come in and not tolerating this idea of idolatry or heresy or immorality. Not accepting that within the body and just saying, well, that's the way that person is. That's the way we are. That's just human nature. Because that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to continue to grow and to change and to leave that old life behind, to leave that sin behind. And so he has called us to repentance. So then we as the church cannot stand and say, well, look at how good we are, that we can tolerate all of this sin. Because that makes grace that much more. No, we, we, we should be safeguarding people's futures by telling them that that sin cannot be harbored in their own life. That sin that you're a part of cannot just continue to be lived in life. You must repent of that. And so we must be constantly battling against sin. Teaching repentance. Teaching that there is a better way to live. And that sin is, by its very nature, destructive. And leads us away from God. Some of the other churches were told that they were doing it wrong because that they were, they were dead. And indifferent. I think this is one of the actually one of the larger temptations that we face in the society that we live in right now. That it's easy to take on the name of Christ. It's easy to say that you're uh, a Christian. It's easy to go to church um, Sundays, Wednesdays, whenever. It's easy to do all those things, and and then have to battle apathy because we're so very comfortable. We're so very comfortable in, in society. And not like comfortable as in the, we're glad we have padded seats, but, but comfortable that you know, we don't have to really talk about God. We don't really have to do this. We don't really have to do that because we live in a Christian nation and all of these other things. And the world just kind of tells us you know, it's, it's okay not to, 
to do this. It's okay not to give thanks to God. It's okay not to pray. It's okay not to read your Bible. It's okay not to share with others around you. It's okay not to love your neighbor. It's okay to do all of these things because you know what? It's just, just go with the flow, man. It's just easier. What happens when you become indifferent? Apathetic. No longer really, no longer really care. Does that, does that lead to life or does that lead to death? Now that's a, you may view that as a harsh statement, but which does that lead to? Apathy does not lead to life. H- having a, 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 a life that says, I don't, really, I don't really care about what goes on with the church does not lead to a closer relationship with God. Being disconnected from the church does not lead to encouraging the church or being encouraged by the church. We have to battle this. This is... This is the society that we live in. That says, and hopefully this doesn't come across as a criticism, but says that, you know what, if you don't like it, just go somewhere else. You know, if I don't, if I don't like what's happening here, I'll just pick up and I'll go somewhere else. I'll go worship at a different church, or I'll, or I'll do this, or I won't do that, or I'll do this, or I'll say that. Instead of being committed of working through those issues, of talking and, and, and really, you know, caring about what happens, being invested in the church. The temptation is to be indifferent, to be dead. Is, is it possible for us to hold on and, and claim the name of Christ and be indifferent? Some of us don't think it is, I think. What does this passage say if you read through uh, Revelations 2 into Revelations 3 as they're showing criticisms of the church and it says, well, you're indifferent. Well, obviously it's possible then, isn't it? It's possible to, to say that you're a part of the church and, and to be dead. We have to get out of that and not live with that indifference. This is a fairly scathing criticism. But this is one of the largest temptations I think we face is to leave here on Sunday morning, or whenever we leave, it'll probably be Sunday afternoon, with our bellies full after potluck, and then not think about church until next Sunday morning when we're deciding what to wear. And if that is closer to how we are, than the opposite of thinking about God, of being invested, of praying and studying and caring and sharing and loving, then we need to change. And we're doing it wrong. We need to be committed to being what God has called us to be when we take on the name of Christ. Now, they weren't all doing it wrong. In fact, they were doing it right as well, as we saw when we read from the the, the part that was written to Ephesus, that there were things that they were doing wrong and things that they were doing right. Ephesus was rejecting evil to the point where they were, they were looking at those who were false apostles. They were testing them. They were testing them and finding them false. They were understanding the truth to the point where they could recognize what was false. They were rejecting evil. This is a... Well, they also patient. They also have perseverance. But this, is, this idea of rejecting evil is amazing, isn't it? 
You know, we talked about sin, we talked about temptation, we talked about all these things that are, are placed in front of us. Are we capable, are we actually rejecting the evil that is placed in front of us? Are we rejecting the temptation that Satan puts in front of us? This is a wonderful trait. And we have to find a way to, to replicate this in our lives as a church. We can't allow evil to fester in us as a body of believers. We must reject that which is false. How do we do this? There was a time when I was younger, uh, and this will sound silly maybe, but there was a time when I was younger that I, I thought I had to, to have an awareness of, of all that was going on in the world so that I could reject that which was evil, if that makes sense. So if there was a, a, some kind of a movie that came out that people were saying, well, you know, that wasn't bad, or that was bad, then then I would actually go and watch it so that I could refute all the evil that was in it. You know how long it takes to do that? It took up more time than it did studying God's Word, and I came to a conclusion that that is the absolutely wrong way to do it. Instead of trying to find ways to refute evil by knowing all of the evil, let's know what is good. Let's study what is good. Let's open up God's word and know it and study it so that when evil comes, when that which is false comes, we can say, no, no, no. No, that is wrong. That is evil. That is false. Because this is what God's word says. This is what it actually says. This is what God actually wants from us. To do what is right. To know what is right. To live what is right. Some of the other churches are commended for their faith. And again, this is, a, this is an absolute must. They're, contend, they're commended for their faith. We have to be a people of faith, of action. We must trust in God, trust in His promises. And know that what He says is true. To learn to act and react according to the Word of God. To live by faith no matter what. They're also called and told that they're graceful and loving. I think if we look at these things, rejecting evil, living in faith, living in graceful and loving, does this remind us of anyone as we read through the New Testament? How was the life of Jesus lived? Well, obviously, without sin, right? Temptation came his way, and what did he do? Refuted it with the word of God, chose to do the will of God, lived according to the will of God, which is also faith, graceful, Loving, kind, compassionate. This is how Jesus lived. So now when we see this and understand, we have an op opportunity then as a church to then be established according to the example of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, the Son of God. And that's how the church is supposed to live, isn't it? That's how the church is supposed to act in the world around us, isn't it? According to the example of Jesus. So often I think we find ourselves drawn away saying, well, I will do this because I believe it to be right, right now, right here, in this moment. I'm going to choose to do what I believe to do is right. Are we always going to be right when we do that? If we base it on what I believe to be right, are we always going to be right? We may be able to console ourselves later when we recognize that we were wrong and say, well, but I... I did the best I could. I, I chose to do what is right according to what I thought was, was best. That's a dangerous trap. Open up God's word. Study it. Learn it. 
and react according to uh, the truth that is in there, the wisdom that is in there. Live and do what is right. This is how the church should act. So, what will we be? Have you ever uh, read those uh, passages in, in Revelations? I, if you haven't, I would suggest that you do to, to the seven churches, starting in Revelations chapter 2. Have you ever read them and thought to yourself, what, what would be written to us here in uh, Carmen? Winnipeg, wherever you're from this morning, B.C. somewhere. What, what would they write to you? What would it look like? Would there be commendations? Would there be criticisms? Would there be a call to change? And if we begin to recognize those things, if we begin to recognize the things that we need to pick ourselves up in, then what is keeping us from that change? If there are things that we are doing well, then we should embrace those things and continue on and to grow those things. But if there are things that we need to change, what is keeping us from doing that? I think we have to recognize, first and foremost... The strength we need to have as individuals. Have you ever seen uh, uh, cheerleaders uh, make a pyramid? Okay, right? So they, there's like however many on the bottom, and then so many, and then so many, until that one person at the top. Where do you want to be in that? I'm wanting to be on the top. I'm t- I mean, that's the easiest spot, isn't it? You just climb up on top and... Well, you have to be able to get there, I guess. Maybe I wouldn't be able to handle that. But every, each individual has to have a strength, right? To hold up the other. And even the one on top that says, well, I don't have to hold anybody. they got to get there. So the, each individual has to have a strength. We as individuals that make up the body of believers, each part has to have a strength. We have to have a relationship with God. We have to be healthy. We, now we have to help each other in that. We have to remind each other, encourage one another, strengthen one one another. We have to help each other. But as individuals, we have to be strong. And we have to work on our relationship with God. Because we only meet here so often. We only gather even in small groups uh, so often. But as individuals, we are a part of the body everywhere we go. We are Christians everywhere we go. And so we have to make choices to be strong as individuals. To make right choices And then, understanding that we are a part of the body. And the choices we make then, again, affect the body. And we have to come together and encourage one another as a part of the body. And know that this is who we are. Individuals that make up a part of the body. When we make choices, do we understand that it affects the body? Do we give it a thought? Do we understand the importance of encouraging one another, of spurring each other on. Have you ever seen someone who you absolutely know needed encouragement? And what did you do? Did you walk away thinking, well, I'll catch them later. Did you understand that the choices you're making help or hurt them? That even if you don't always know the words to say or feels awkward, do you just go up and give them a hug? Or that say that we care about you or we're thinking about you or any of those things. 
to encourage them. Even, even if you feel at the time drained yourself, you can still go and give encouragement because we need to love one another. We need to love one another. Turn into, into 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. Dear friends, again reading from the NIV, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Do we know the love of God? Do we know God, who is love? If we do, we are called to do what? As an expression of our knowledge and understanding of God who loves us, we are called to love one another. For we are brothers and sisters. We are a family. We are a part of the body of believers. Do we always agree with each other? Do we get upset sometimes with each other? Are there times when we are in a disagreement with one another? How many of you have brothers or sisters? How many of you would say you love them? Oh, not very many hands went up. Uh, all the same people who put their hand up before, I will assume you're going to put your hand up again. Uh, how many of you have disagreed with them, have argued with them, sometimes find it hard to be around them? Now, I can say that, but my siblings cannot. Some of you had to think that through for a second. But we understand that the love that we have runs deeper. It runs deeper. We love one another. We are a body of believers. We are all each unique. We have different ways of looking at the world. We have different thoughts. We have different ways of expressing ourselves. Sometimes we may disagree on certain things. None of that changes this. That God loves us. And we are to love one another. And I would instruct you to go through and read 1 Corinthians so that you have an understanding of what love is. But we love one another, for we are a body of believers. This is how we should act. When we understand this, and we have this to rely on, this to grow from, this foundation of the body of believers, then I think it is easier for us 
than to be compelled to, to understand that we take this love that we are given from our brothers and sisters and then can go out into the world and show what love is. And if we are not doing this, if, if we as a church are forgetting these things, then it becomes harder then to go into the world and to love our neighbor, to love those who are sinful, to love our enemies, if we have a hard time loving those who are our brothers and our sisters. We need to love one another. Let us love deeply. Let us correct our wrongs. Let us strengthen what we are doing right. Let us live for God in all that we do, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words, understanding that there is growth needed in all of us. I want to close this morning from reading in uh, 1 Corinthians, if you'd like to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Then if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If we were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it.